the crawl space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? Oh my goodness. I thought the last time I was great. I thought I was better than ever, but today I'm better than I was the last time. So better than ever, Tim. How are you? I'm wonderful. Well, this is part two of our interview with Lee Miller, in which we talk about his wonderful new book, Behind the Horror, True Stories That Inspired Horror Movies. And now in part two, we're talking about his fantastic podcast, Murder Was the Case, that's on the Crawl Space Media Podcast Network. Check out all the shows at crawlspace-media and make sure to listen on Spotify or Anchor. And in this episode, Lance, we're not talking specifically about his book. We are talking about his podcast and a series that he has done on his podcast that is quite incredible. Really is. He's got a six-part series called Thailand Sting, and it's with a gentleman named Elaine Oliver, who was, well, he was um, set up by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And I really don't want to give too much away on this, but when I say set up, Tim, I'm not talking about a one-time occurrence where he was put in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was set up for life, and it's incredible. You're talking about Mr. Big Lance, original Maura Murray. Uh, Missing Maura Murray listeners might know uh, that reference. Um, Or you could just Google Mr. Big, not the band. And not Christopher Knopf. (laughs) <laughs> right. Uh, it was it was a Canadian um, police tactic, undercover tactic that they used. Um, so that's kind of where the story goes. But we don't want to give it all away um, because it is amazing and there's a lot of twists and turns. And so at the end of this episode, this interview, this part of the interview with Lee Miller, we are going to play a clip from his podcast, Murder Was the Case, and we invite you to subscribe to it on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, everybody, hope you enjoy part two and the clip from Lee's show. Make sure to check us out on the Get Vocal show Thursday night, 9 p.m. Eastern. We have private investigator Greg Overacker on. It's going to be great. And if we've said it once, we've said it a thousand times. The best place to interact is on Get Vocal, but you can watch on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook. But come on over to GetVocal.com, join our room, and you can hang out with everybody. The The community there is growing every single week, and we love All of the dialogue that happens there in the message area, they can talk about making dinner, they can talk about cases, and then we can have Greg Overacker on, and we're talking about every case that he's worked on, including uh, his work for Private Investigations for the Missing. It's an hour that flies by. Get your butt over there. And Lee, your podcast is wonderful as well, and it's it's on the Crawl Space Network, so of course it's wonderful. Oh, yeah. And you've been doing a recent series of real interest. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, so I really wanted to bring attention to this series that I'm doing right now, the Thailand Sting series. I'm about six episodes deep at the moment, and the reason why it's so important is Murder Was the Case got really popular because of a wrongful conviction case I did, but also the mystery surrounding it, which was called the Baltovich file in which I sat down. I talked to Rob Baltovich, who was wrongfully convicted of killing his still missing girlfriend, Elizabeth Bain. And then through that, I received word from someone. If you think that case is crazy, you have to look at the case of Alain Olivier and I said, okay, sure. 
the last one was very successful. Always like to balance out my talking with cops with wrongful convictions, try and you know cover the spectrum. I find it's more objective that way. So let's do another wrongful conviction series. And so this guy came all the way down from Montreal to stay at my place. So hours and hours on the train. We never met each other. We're just hanging out for the weekend. I know he's been in prison. And so I don't know, could be a psycho, could be completely full of shit for all I know. But we just hang out and I go, okay, man, tell me your story. And he starts to tell me the story. And I don't want to reveal it to everyone because I'm the king of teas. But really, if I tell you how it gets to the present day, there's so many what the fuck moments in this. Like, I, don't, I cannot spoil them for you. But just to tell you that it's mind blowing. Halfway through my interview with this guy, I was even wondering if he was telling me the truth until he showed me court documentation, which I spent a few hours reading. And I came back to him and I was like, yeah, man. Oh, fuck, did you get screwed? I'll give you a taste of where it starts. It starts with a young French-Canadian man, and he's in Montreal. He's dropped out of high school, but he's playing in bands or doing roadie work for them. And it's back in the 70s and 80s, so like late 70s, early to mid-80s. And so people are doing all kinds of cocaine and such just all the time. It wasn't... It was just something you did back then. And that roughly coincides with the whole cocaine cowboys, Escobar type thing. Coke was everywhere. So he's just partying and partying and partying. And he realizes, man, I got to stop doing this. I'm just wasting my life in Montreal with these rock bands. So I'm going to move all the way out to the other coast, the West Coast. And he moves to the Vancouver area. And he starts to work construction. And he's thinking... I'm going to get my life together, have something more conventional going. But then he finds out, to his amazement, that they also party pretty goddamn hard in Vancouver. And Vancouver's also full of coke. So Yeah. You you had even mentioned, like, it was ironic that someone with a drug problem like he had would move <laughs> from an area that really wasn't known to have a drug problem, per se, to Vancouver, which was like... That that was that was like the like mean streets and it's back then, right? Yeah, and there still is a large problem with drugs in Vancouver. At the intersection of Maine and Hastings, apparently is the epicenter, and it's actually been called pain and wasting. Just a little side note, that's where Robert Picton procured many of his victims. That's the pig farm serial killer, but this probably would have been happening slightly after Alain was there. So yeah, he goes to Vancouver and he's working construction and he doesn't speak much English but he soon finds out that yeah people in Vancouver like to party too and he describes himself as being very vivacious energetic and charismatic at the time he makes friends with a lot of people easily and he's going out and he starts to party again and at some point he encounters heroin now I will say this he doesn't inject it and to my knowledge never does but he snorts heroin, and it's like pretty much everyone's reaction to heroin besides vomiting the first time, which is, oh my god, there is no better drug than this. He keeps it in check for a bit, but he's making such good money doing construction 
that he decides to do a trip to Southeast Asia. So go around to places like Nepal, Thailand, Malaysia. He has all this money to spend, so he wants to go and learn about the cultures and hike around the mountains and such. But while he's there, one of the things that is readily available, and you can just get it from these tuk-tuk drivers, which is like a rickshaw driver, is little baggies of heroin. It's also incredibly criminalized there. Like, you get the death penalty if you have a certain amount on you. Now, Alain makes it back. What I'm basically laying out for you is the first episode. Because the first episode, we talk a lot about heroin, what it feels like, drug addiction, And I worry that people will get stuck on that and think it's all it is. But so first episode, this is all going on. He comes back to Vancouver. He brings a tiny, tiny little amount back for personal use. And he's resolved that this is just to get me through because I'm going to start coming off this stuff. I've seen how dangerous it is. I'm already addicted. He essentially becomes addicted in Southeast Asia. When he gets back, he goes, he moves away from Vancouver to a lovely scenic island called Gibson's Landing. And that's where he meets a charter fisherman by the name of Glenn Barry. And Glenn Barry becomes a very sinister antagonist in this story. But at first, Glenn Barry seems like the coolest guy in the world. He's about 10 years older than Alan and some of his friends. He's taking them out on his fishing boat. He says that Glenn Barry is this master fisherman. Glenn Barry is one of those guys that can just keep drinking and never seems to get drunk. Glenn Barry's doing coke with them. He's doing heroin with them. And at one point, Glenn Barry says to him, how would you like to become a partner in my charter fishing business? You know, we take people out to sea and they can fish. Now, that's how charter fishing works, and that's how we'll make our money. So if you're thinking from his perspective, it's like, well, this guy likes to party, and I like fishing, I like nature. This seems like the perfect setup for a life for me. So he's invested in this emotionally all the time while trying to kick this drug habit. Then one day, Glenn Barry says, we're going to a a party which Alan knew about this party. It was something to do with like a a boating party, and he says, but we're going to meet my friends from the organization. Now, Glenn Barry had referred to these people briefly before, basically saying that they helped traffic lots of cocaine, so Miami Vice level of cocaine, into Vancouver, and that he had gone to, I think it was Columbia, on one occasion to assist with this. Now, Alan doesn't care. He's a heroin addict, but he certainly has no intention of getting involved with organized crime. He does go to this party because he wants to stay on Glenn Barry's good side and he meets these guys who he describes as being like stereotypical Miami Vice Scarface-like gangsters. They've got all the bling, you know, the suits and whatever. One of them is more genial and forthcoming. The other's like the silent brooding assassin in the background. And Glenn Barry starts saying to Alan, he's going, don't do anything to make me lose face as they approach them. And as they meet these guys, they're like, oh, you must be Alain Olivier. Yeah, we've heard about you. You're a big-time heroin trafficker, and we'd like to work with you to bring all this heroin over from Thailand. And at this point, Alain is just going, you know what? 
I don't want to make Glenn lose face because he's clearly set this up, but I have never trafficked heroin in my life. I got small amounts from these tuk-tuk drivers. And so he just sort of nods and remains quiet. He, do- he doesn't confirm or deny, according to his own story. But they keep on it, and Glenn keeps talking about, yeah, when Alan goes over there and does the operation. So Alan just says to himself, I'm just going to get out of this situation, leave this party. I'm sure as hell not trafficking heroin for these guys because I don't even know how. I don't have that, those kind of connections. What happens, though, is some time goes by and Glenn keeps saying to him, hey, so you're going to do the deal with my friends? And Alan's like, no, I told you. I Tuk-tuk drivers, that's all I know. I don't traffic in heroin. And then one night, Alan is back at Gibson's Landing with the charter fishing boat. And one of the two Miami Vice-type gangsters who wants him to traffic heroin shows up and he's with another guy. And Glenn Barry says, they're just going to be taking the boat out to sea. And he gets in the boat with this other guy and they head out to sea and they're gone for a couple days. And Alan's thinking, like, where's the boat? What's going on? Finally, the boat arrives back and there's only one guy left in the boat and that's the gangster guy. And he gets off the boat. Alan goes to speak with him and he just shoulder bumps him, just moves right past him. And Alan's like, well, we have clients. We've got to clean out this boat and get it ready. He goes, he looks in the boat. The boat is full of blood and empty shell casings. He goes running into the office and he talks to Glenn and he says, Glenn, what the hell's going on? There's like blood in the boat, there's shell casings. I don't know what just happened, but we have to get this ready. Like we have a business to run here. And Glenn says, what happened to that guy is exactly what will happen to you unless you go to Thailand and you set us up and we get this heroin deal going through. And they then start to make 18 months of his life a living hell, trying to convince him. And that's essentially just episode one and a bit of episode two. That isn't even the major twists and turns. So this is crazy. It seems like these people are using him in a situation where he's disposable to them and they will basically move on to somebody else and send that person out into a dangerous territory to go deal heroin for them. Uh, It feels like this guy Glenn built him up uh, to be something that he's not and really has no regard for his personal safety or well-being. That's exactly it. You know, he lured him in with this idea of you can be part of the charter fishing business. You can live in paradise. And I don't even care if you do drugs. I'll do drugs with you. And as this goes on, they really carrot and stick him to the greatest extent possible, really. They say, look, if you don't do this, the same thing's going to happen to you that happened to the last guy. And we can find you anywhere. And they prove that by when he goes back to his family's home in Quebec, which is a long way away from Vancouver for, I think it was either Chris. Yeah, it was Christmas dinner. There is a phone call at the house. Alan, it's for you. He comes and picks up the phone, told you we could find you anywhere, right? They're doing this on Christmas day or Christmas Eve, something like that. And so they're essentially saying on the one hand, if you don't do this for us, you're dead and your family's in danger. 
But then they say, but if you do do it for us, we'll give you a cut of it and you can have all the drugs you want. Now, if you can imagine what such a promise is like for a heroin junkie, it's highly enticing, especially given what the other option is. And without revealing too much, Alain still, still won't do it for them. And they just keep turning up the pressure and turning up the pressure. And he just starts to think, they're going to kill me. Still? Like as in like currently? No, there's a whole story that happens between 1989 and the present, which is full of twists and turns. What I've just given you is essentially like the opening 15 to 20 minutes of the movie. And let's just say it's kind of usual suspects level twists and turns, except it happened in real life. So I'm a little reluctant to go any farther than that. But if you just listen to that first episode by episode two, especially by halfway through episode two, the listener is going to be absolutely hooked. And I will add that there is a criminal justice element where this man's been severely wronged and he has never, this has never been acknowledged and it needs to be. And so not only am I telling you a compelling story, but also we're trying to get justice for Alain because this doesn't go well for him. This really messes up his life. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't sound like it would go well for anyone, but listening to him, he's not coming from a place, or at least it doesn't sound like he is coming from a place of uh, distress or or regret. I mean, maybe he obviously regrets regrets it, but um, did you get a sense that he, for some weird way, came out of this a better person? He came out a hell of a lot stronger put it that way. The Alain Olivier, who was scared of those gangsters in Vancouver, by the time he passed through the underworld and returned, I think would have probably dealt with them. Dealt with them in a uh, violent way? I think, in a, at, yeah, potentially, but he at least would have told the authorities, I believe. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see. But he could have dealt with them in a violent way, or at least could have tried to. You know, at that time, he was a vulnerable young man. He didn't know what he was getting into. He didn't know who he was dealing with, what their capabilities were. But as I said, he has, it's the archetypal hero story. He descends into hell and emerges. And by the time he's out of hell, he's a pretty formidable character. But it's a shame that he has to go through hell. And people should be outraged that he has to go through hell. And when they listen to the series, that's what we're hoping for. I should also point out, too, that this is not just my podcast doing this. We timed this to release with a movie on Alan's struggle. And in the States, it's called Most Wanted. Elsewhere, it's called Target Number One. Uh, Alan is in it. Uh, well, he's he's portrayed in it, I should say. And the reporter who breaks his case, Victor Malarik, who I've also had on the show, he's one of the last great investigative reporters. He's portrayed by Josh Hartnett in the movie and Glenn Barry, the charter fisherman who can drink all day and not get drunk and takes all the drugs and gets Alain involved in all of this is actually 
played by Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, who, from what I hear, absolutely kills that role. That's really cool. I can't wait to see it. Yeah, it's got a good cast. It does, and it's actually the number one film in Canada right now, according to Alain, who I just spoke with. I mean, obviously part of that is the fact that there's not many films out because of the empty movie theaters, but in Canada, it's a number one movie, and he says it's only received great critical reception. Alain also put out his book, Good Luck Frenchie, which is a sinister phrase that will be said to him, and you'll get to that probably by about episode five. And so he put out his book. So you have the option of listening to my podcast, which I obviously hope you do. But there's also this film out, Most Wanted or Target Number One, depending where you are. And there's Alain's book, Good Luck Frenchie. Alain also has a website because he has so many people that they find his case so outlandish and so hard to believe that he spent hundreds of hours putting together this website, alainolivier.ca, so not .com.ca, that's the Canadian one, and it's Alan with an I, A-L-A-I-N. Olivier is Oliver with an I, O-L-I-V-I-E-R.ca. And if you listen to the episodes of the podcast and you're going, this can't be true, there's no way this story could have happened because that's how I felt. And I, you know, I was sitting right across from the guy, go to his website. He has made it so easy to prove his case. And then you should become shocked and angry. Yeah. That's pretty impressive how much work he's uh, put into this just to make sure his name is cleared. And it's also very impressive. The interview that you conduct with him over the course of um, so many hours, uh, do you consider him to be a friend now? Does he consider you to be a friend? Because he had a good rapport. Oh, yeah, for sure, man. He's just a good dude, you know? I did little tests, actually. He doesn't know this, but when he was here, I would do things like leave a $20 bill sitting out. And just to test him to see, let's say this guy is criminally inclined or whatever. He probably would take that. But... All the time he was at my house, he was nothing but respectful. And he has not a bone of serious criminal in him at all. You know, I don't count people who are addicts as real criminals. Yes, what the acts they do are criminal. Whether they should be or not, that's a whole other debate. But they don't have a criminal type personality. And trust me, I'm used to criminal personalities. He didn't have one. So, yeah, we did develop a good rapport, and I would consider Alan a friend. It's funny. He probably saw that $20 bill, and he probably thought about all of the shit that he's been through and thought, no, that's a, a cute trick, Lee. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he's very vigilant about it. Yeah, but a very respectful man, a very serene man, a man who's come to terms with the hell he's been through, which, honestly, it, it was at the far extremes but at the same time a guy who wants justice and as he said at this point he's 60 years old i mean it's not really about him it's about actually what happened with the canadian criminal justice system as a result of all this and it needs to be changed so i would say that yes i am his friend and i would point out too 
that right before my podcast series dropped and right before his film, once again, Most Wanted or Target Number One, depending where you live, debuted in Montreal, his website that he'd spent hundreds of hours meticulously curating so that people could have easy access to all the documents sorted chronologically was hacked. Now you've got to ask yourself, who would have a vested interest in hacking the website of a guy who's not a celebrity, he's not a politician, he's not even really a public figure. He's just a guy who's arguing, I've been wrongfully accused. There's only one institution or group of people that I would argue have an interest in hacking that site. And the fact that they did exposes the levels to which the Canadian government is covering this up. Because frankly, guys, if this ever comes out, which we're hoping it is now, it is going to be a major political scandal in this country. And Canada's not used to something on this level, but it will absolutely shake people's trust in the federal government and law enforcement in Canada. So they're doing everything they can to stop people from believing this story and hearing it. Is this somehow Mr. Big related? Yeah. Oh, boy. Which I believe is illegal in your country. Well, one of the first CDs I ever bought was Mr. Big. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and uh, original Missing Maura Murray uh, listeners might know uh, where we're going with that. But wow, this is such a compelling story, Lee. And uh, we really invite everyone to check out your book, check out your podcast, listen to this series, watch the movie Most Wanted here in the States. Um, And uh, wow, thanks a lot, Lee, for joining us here. Yeah, thanks for giving me some airtime to promote the book and to tell Alain's story. As I said, uh, with Alain, this is more than just about trying to make my podcast popular. I'm okay with where it is right now. This is for me, I'm not really somebody that makes a point of going out to pursue, say, uh, social justice issues, but this one really got under my skin. And so I'm putting my entire weight behind it. I believe in it that much. And I need to know that other people can see that there's something wrong here and that Alain Olivier does actually matter as a person and getting justice for him. So that's why I'm pushing this so hard. And as for behind the horror, I've already been paid. Part of my arrangement, I don't get any royalties because they pay me well to do it in the first place. So I'm plugging the buck mainly because I think it's so good that everyone is going to want to read it. And I'm actually really proud of the work that I've, put into it. And I think people are going to love it. So absolutely no financial incentives behind this whatsoever. It's just things I think people need to pay attention to. And I thank you for granting me a platform to get that message across on both ends. Well, and take care of yourself too. And, uh, you know, make sure you double check your, uh, your locks and everything and, um, make sure you're safe because if this, uh, Thing blows up the way you said it's going to blow up uh you know we'd, we'd like to still ha- have you on the network as a as a podcast uh content creator and not uh not actually on um criminal perspective 
Well, to be honest with you, I mean, this is another reason why it's good to speak with you guys and to get out as much information as possible. And I encouraged when Alan's site went down, I got the documents out to as many listeners as I could. Because honestly, people need to know that right now that I've probably moved somewhat into the crosshairs. I don't want to sound dramatic. I really hope I haven't. But it's a very good possibility that I have. I don't think I'll be killed or anything, but you never know what they might do with um, my websites or the podcast. There are powerful people involved in this. And so the fact that I'm on here is also a form of insurance, right? It's like, if you see funky shit start happening to me, there will be a reason for it. And you guys know what that is now. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, well, thanks for dragging us into this, Lee. Yeah, I've never... Lee who? <laughs> <laughs> no, you guys, you guys are enough removed from it that that's the point too, right? The more people... Yeah, but the more people that spread this story and who look at these documents and download them for, you know, for safety, just because they've hacked Alan's site before, the more people who get involved, the less control they'll have over it. And at some point, they're just going to have to give up because the story is going to be like a, a horse running wild. They won't be able to put the reins on it. Right now, I could be harnessed, but not if enough people get involved. And here's a clip from Lee Meller's Murder Was the Case podcast, which you can find on the Crawl Space Network. Subscribe in the links in the show notes. This is from episode two in his Thailand Sting series. Thanks a lot for listening. was my sister and my brother who answered the phone and said, Alan, it's for you. And when I got the phone, the first thing I heard was, surprise, surprise, says, Merry Christmas, says, it's me, it's Glenn. And I said, how did you get a hold of me? He says, I told you that we could find you wherever you go. You are listening to part two of Thailand Sting. For those of you who have already met Alain Olivier, get ready to chase the dragon. Because after this one, You'll be hooked. So look at this. Black masses, mutilations, mutilations. We have a weird homicide. Mountains of stones and rivers of blood. As I'm sitting there with a severed head in my hand, talking to it. And I'm about to go crazy, literally. I'm about to go completely flywheel loose and just fall apart. Once they get here. I say, wow, this is insane. It's over, pal. Glenn Barry physically was uh, much bigger than me, at least 40, 50 pounds heavier than me. He used to be a metal worker, iron worker, I mean, and six foot tall, maybe 185 pounds, 190 pounds, thick bones. Good guy at first, but at some point, after I found the shells and everything on the boat, this is when I saw the other side of him that wasn't the type to fool around with. He could smile at you. I realized he could smile at you for one minute, and the moment after you could turn around, he would stab you in the back. But I don't know that at the time, and I was so afraid of him and his friends after that. Every time he was with people, he knew how to get people together and to entertain them and party with them and 
find ways to know pretty much all their secrets. <laughs> that was the type of guy. He could be very smiley and all of a sudden he could explode in rage. And this is when I, I mean, I started to fear him. And I tried to leave Gibson's to go away. And he didn't agree with it because he had to keep an eye on me. And after the murder scenario at the end of the salmon fishing season, one of my customers on the boat offered me to go work on the first uh, fishing plan that they had on the coast for Aquarius Company. I told him that I was to leave Gibson to go work about an hour and a half away from Gibson just to make money I needed to be able to live. And he wasn't happy with that at all, but in the end, he's the one who drove me over there. And while I was working over there, uh, from Labor Day uh, until about November, mid-November, sometime he appeared in the middle of the night, he would drive away from Gibson's, drunk and high on, on cocaine. And what paint. kind of car did he have? He had a van, he had a Dodge van, yellow, all yellow and all finished with plywood inside and he had paid that I think for $400 from another French guy in Gibson who uh, after a few weeks in Gibson he wanted to come back in Quebec and he needed money and he sold him the van for 400 bucks and that was his ride back then in the 80s all minivans were not minivans what we used to have a, like little vans in the 80s it was pretty popular and this is what he was going around with. He wasn't flashing as such, except on certain occasion when he would take out his jewelry. He had a big Rolex oyster uh, gold. That might have been worth 20, 25 grand easily. Diamond rings and etc., etc. For special occasion, he would take that out. And as the time went by, when it did, in November over uh, Egmont where I was working, I ended up having an accident and slugated my shoulder and I couldn't work for for a while, so I went back to Gibson's Landing. But meanwhile, I used to go back to Gibson's on the weekend and I used to go live sometime at the marina, sometime at my girlfriend's place, depending if she was in town or not. And Glenn Barry kept on coming over there and Egmont asking me, to help them out to find a source of heroin in Thailand. He says you wouldn't have to work and you would have all the drugs that you want. And uh, I remember uh, days after uh, the murder scenario, I had gone to Vancouver and the first thing I tried to do was to find some heroin over there in Vancouver. And I ended up doing a big line and it kind of cooled me down, calmed me down as well. And it's like I... All the pressure and the stress of this did not affect me as much as when I was totally sober. But you're still not free of Glenn Barry. Oh, no, I was far from being Tell free. Tell me, how, know, how is he controlling I, I, you? By I, scaring you? I was, yeah. In the, you were that scared of him? Yeah, 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 yeah. For instance, yeah, he, he was stressing me. When they told me when I found the ballet on the boat that if I wasn't doing what they wanted, that same thing would happen to me. I took him seriously, mostly when I had the shells in my hand, the empty shells of nine millimeters. I took him seriously. You're damn right, I took him seriously. <laughs> Did you ever think about going to the police? I'm just curious. 
Yes, I thought of it, but I knew I could not. Because I know that if I would have tried to tell the police, I couldn't prove anything. The guy had disappeared. I didn't know the guy. The blood on the boat, as soon as Bennett left the parking lot after that, and I th Glenn Barry says, throw that in the ocean. I threw the ballet in the marina at the bottom of the water. He says, go clean the boat because I have a customer. I have to go with Mr. Houston at 11 o'clock. So I cleaned the old boat. But automatically, by doing all that, I became an accessory to murder. And they told me that same thing would happen to me as this guy who disappeared if I wasn't doing what they wanted. And Glenn Barry, during the week before that, kept asking me while we were fishing, why, Alan, don't you help us to find some guy in Thailand who could do some business with my buddies and you would make good money, you would have all the dope that you want, you would have everything that you want, we're going to build that big hotel you like entertainment, I'm going to let you take care of the pub and all the entertainment, the bands and everything. You're going to have your boat and et cetera, et cetera. A whole bunch of promises, including him who was telling me that he was about to bring his 55-footers Chris Craft boat from San Francisco and the business would roll and everything. Just the charter business, I was happy with that. But then after the murder scenario and everything, and they started putting pressure on me, they wanted to make sure they could trust me. Otherwise, things wouldn't go good for me. What they wanted was to have a source of air in Thailand. And by asking me to go to find them a guy who could deal drugs for them, supply their market in Vancouver, they would give me 10% of the amount of heroin they were to buy over there. Just to be clear, did Glenn Barry ever give you heroin to do with him? Did he, was he ever like, No, but heroin? he gave me cocaine on several occasions. Okay, that's Pretty important. much every week I've been with him. He always had cocaine. I even remember that he asked me to go in Vancouver to buy him an ounce of cocaine. Back then, that was easy. You go to the strip club, go see the doorman, and... That's it, you're going to get your answer like that. That's how it worked. People didn't have to, to break their balls to get dough back then. I mean, I remember he was a party animal. That's all it was. You don't talk about alcohol a lot in this scenario. Him, he was drinking a lot. Yeah. Myself, I was drinking too, but not like him. I couldn't drink the amount of beer he would drink. He could wake up in the morning and just break a little can or two just not to get the shake. It sounds to me like Glenn Barry's scary because he seems so effective. Like, here's a guy that can just keep drinking, right? Here's a guy who's pretty big. Here's a guy who's got money and he's got opportunities yeah. and, and he's you, charismatic and, and he, he can get shit done. You've seen him already. I'm just trying to understand the pressure. So that's why you're afraid because he seems mm. very effective. He seems deadly serious. When yeah. he says to you, I'll kill you too, yeah. he seems really serious, obviously, right? But So that's yeah. like the stick. But then the carrot is also like, do you want free Coke? And then yeah. also like, do you want to be part of the business? Do you want all this stuff? You can yeah. die or you can have a uh, part of my business. You can have all the drugs, drugs you want. You can have all the women you want. So in a way, the only reason that you would not just do what Glenn Barry says, I think would be if you were really concerned that he was 
gonna take you out anyways. I was just but some psycho. If not him, Bennett. Bennett was, according to Glenn Berry, was the hitman for their organization. What's the organization called? Does it have one? A name? They have a name. It's, it's not a brand. It's just a group no, of people. That was a criminal organization, just without name. It's whatever you, you so want. So what to did call he it. call it? What did Glenn Berry call that? He never called. Any he name. didn't say like the group or like no, the no, boys no, no. or anything like that. No, they were a bunch of guys. They were all in mid thirties to early forties, and all of them. I remember when I met Bennett and Dennis Massey. They were dressed like the guys in Miami Vice, like I told you. With yeah. Hawaii. they had Hawaiian shirt and slacks and loafers and diamond rings and big gold watch and chains. They really had the talk, I mean, of the drug dealers and everything. And the exchange between the two of them, while Glenn went to get beers, I didn't realize that at the time, but after that I did. They had the talk, they had the walk, they flash. Just like we saw in so many movies, I mean, whatever, it's the Italian mafia or even the Chinese or Scarface. 